Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Everyday Oral Surgery Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Grant K. Stuckey. As a reminder, in this podcast, you will be hearing surgeons discussing ways to improve the practice of oral max facial surgery. Most of the information shared will be based on personal experience and opinions. If you are a regular follower of the podcast, please go to our website, everydayoralsurgery.com, create a profile and log in. There you can post questions about topics that you would like to receive comments on from oral and maxillofacial surgeons. On the website, you can also sign up for the weekly newsletter that will highlight the current episodes. Additionally, if you are a true fan of the podcast, you can purchase our sweet merch such as cool jackets, hoodies, and hats with the Everyday Oral Surgery logo on it. The last and most important thing, if you would like to be a guest on the podcast or know someone that you'd like to hear from on the podcast, please, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com so I can get that set up for us. It's so important to keep making high quality content for all of us to learn. Without further ado, enjoy this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Today I'm with Dr. James Hupp. He's an oral and maxillofacial surgeon. Jim, thank you so much for joining us on the episode today. No, thank you. This is my pleasure to participate. This will be a learning experience for me. Awesome. Well, good to uh, get you on here. You are definitely one of the legends of our specialty and have done so much to contribute you know, to the progress of our specialty. For those you know, who maybe don't know your background, could you give us a brief history of your training and your kind of your career history? Well, first of all, thank you for alluding to that. I may or may not be a legend. My, my <laughs> wife is actually hearing this, so it, it's good for her to hear that. <laughs> she doesn't uh, necessarily all, always back that up. And unfortunately, my mother's not alive. She would have loved to hear that. So, but, but thank you for that compliment. I guess I have an unusual preparation to where I've gotten to at this point in my career. And I'll just go through you know, just basically my training up to this point. You're always learning, so I don't think my training is done yet. But I've been in many places of the country and done a lot of things. But kind of my basic preparation first for dental school was I did graduate uh, from UC Irvine in Southern California. I knew when I was a little kid that I wanted to be a dentist. So my path was always very clear to me as far okay. back as I can remember. So you know, I went to UC Irvine and was a bio sci major knowing that I wanted to go to dental school. And then while I was investigating dental schools, because, you know, I, I always presumed I'd just go to one of the California dental schools. But because of the, I'd always been taught to kind of, you know, you know well, reach if you want to reach. And I, I actually went and met with the uh, chief of oral surgery at USC. And this was before I went to dental school. I, I went there and I said, well, you know, I want to be a dentist, but I've read about the specialty of oral surgery. You know, do you have any advice for me? And he said, well, where are you applying to dental school? And I, I said, well, you know, I, I'm going to the California schools and SC, obviously. Uh, and I said, I, I might apply to Harvard. And he goes, try to get to Harvard. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was actually the chief of oral surgery there that uh, got, got me to even think that I could apply to Harvard. And then I got in and fortunately got in a very small class size. We only had, we started with 20 people and ended up with 16 people in my class. So it was a very intimate group, but you know, for the first two years, we were mixed in with the Harvard medical students. So, and that's, that's like 250 people. So it wasn't as small as it sounds. Knowing that I wanted to go into oral surgery, I applied to oral surgery programs and, and got into a couple that was back before the match. Decided to go to University of Connecticut in Farmington, Connecticut, which was at that point, a very young program. They had had programs at two other hospitals in town, but they decided to merge three programs that were in the Hartford area into one, you know, sponsored by University of Connecticut. So I went there. It was a three-year training program back in those days. 
But I knew from my experience at Harvard, because Harvard had an integrated MD program, that it might be wise to get an MD degree, particularly since I was influenced at Harvard to consider an academic career. And that was even strengthened by just the role models I had at Connecticut. So because of that, I did get the backing of Dick DePazian, who was my chief at Connecticut. And I got advanced standing at the medical school at the University of Connecticut. And that's where I, got, I did two years there. My training then, uh, you know, I went off and, and started working full-time academia, and my next uh, educational experience was when I was at chief of oral surgery at what is now known as Rutgers Dental School in Newark, New Jersey. It was back then, it was UMDNJ, and they, because it was in Newark and they had some trouble with uh, crime, I would say, they had actually would lock up the dental school at six in the evening, and I wasn't kind of done intellectual challenges uh, at that point. And so I went, uh, I applied to the Rutgers uh, Law School, which was in Newark as well. I got into Rutgers Law School and it was a night school. So I could continue to be full-time at the dental school and hospital, but then also go to the law school. It was a four-year night program. I did three years at Rutgers. And then my final year was at the University of Maryland Law School because I, at that point, had moved to be chief of oral surgery at Maryland. And then uh, while I was in Maryland, I was I was chief there for a while. And there was a lot of financial stuff going on as being a department head. And it was always something that, you know, I'm not sure I struggled with, but I certainly thought I could do a better job with. And so there was an MBA program in town at, at Loyola of Maryland. So I went to do their executive MBA program, which was a weekend program. So did all that. And then at one point went back and did a intensive clinical educational program at the Harvard School of Public Health for surgical chiefs. And that was my final thing that I did. So did that use up all the time we have? <laughs> At what point did you become the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Oral Maxfacial Surgery? That was 11 years ago, as of as of 2022. I started in okay. 2011. Before that, I was the editor-in-chief of Triple O for six years. And so as far as being an editor-in-chief, I started that, whatever that is now, 17 years ago. So, uh, wow. you know, that ended as of January 1st of this year when Tom Dotson took over, and now I'm the editor of the Amos Today. Awesome. It's like you can't escape being an editor and dealing with writing and publishing. That's terrific. Nobody that wants to be an oral surgeon, at least not most people that I know want to be an oral surgeon, were good writers or focused on writing when they were younger. You know, they weren't the English majors or the, you know, the literature people. But I have I had a what I consider a very influential uh, sophomore English teacher in high school. And before that, I had no, I didn't even think about how to write something. I would just put stuff down and, you know, whatever, whatever order it popped into my head. And she taught our class how to write. And so that was my biggest influence. And including when I was in law school, I think the faculty understood that I, I could write better than some of the other students. And so they actually had me teach the other law students legal writing, which is People think it's all gibberish, but it's actually very precise. And so writing is something I enjoy doing. I'm not sure I'll admit that there's always a tension when you're trying to think up a topic that you think people will be interested in reading about. So the hardest thing about writing is coming up with what you want to write. Once I have that in mind, I can write stuff pretty fast. But the harder part for me is coming up with what what should I write about. That's always been the, the struggle. Yeah. What are some of the pearls or the key takeaways that you learned 
as the editor of Joms. You know, you had given me some of these questions ahead of time to think about. You know, I don't know yeah. if that's getting behind the scene too much, but this one, I'm not sure I learned a lot by being the journal editor, but it reinforced some of the things which you don't think about every day. First of all, you know, being the editor in chief, I got to work on a regular basis with some really smart, hardworking people in our specialty. And, and these are people that if, if you were in the room with them, you know, they're the section editors of our journal and, and a lot of the other people that are involved in the journal. They're just a remarkable group of people. And, and to think that you get to interact with them on a regular basis, interact not just in a party kind of way, but in an intellectual way, is a, it's a really remarkable thing. I'm not sure anything else compares to that. I did realize, uh, and it was kind of toward the end of my editorship, that people actually read my editorials. I thought that, you know, I, 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 you know some of my editorials I considered, you know, kind of edgy. But right. I, I hardly ever got letters. I hardly ever got letters to the editor. So I figured, well, nobody's reading, you know, because I'm getting no, I'm not stirring up anybody. Yeah. But toward the end, when people knew that I was going to, you know, no longer, uh, you know, I didn't want to put my name back in the hat. They said, oh, man, well, you know, we're, you know, we're going to really miss uh, reading your editorials and they, they were really meaningful and blah, blah, blah. So, so that was good. And then the other thing, which... I had known this in the past, but it was reinforced again, was the, you know, the staff at, at the Amos are really remarkable people. I was able to regularly interact with a lot of the staff over the years, but in particular, and, and you know, as editor-in-chief, you interact with the uh, communications uh, unit, and you know, Jolene Kramer, who's the head of that unit, is just, she's a, a real gem and something that I hope the Amos never loses because, you know, she, she's the one that helps with all the, uh, I don't know that she writes the speeches, but she, she certainly participates in these, you know, speeches our leaders give and a lot of the articles that are, that you see written, the newsletters, uh, the presidential letters, those all have her touch on them. So, you know, again, that was, uh, again, it's not a pearl. Nobody else I think is going to learn anything from that other than the fact that it's, you know, being editor-in-chief gives you that chance to interact with uh, some really, really great people. Yeah, that's a blessing to be working with such just smart, motivated people. That's awesome. The next question I have for you is, there's so much information in the Journal of World Medical Surgery and Triple O and on PubMed. I mean, there's just endless amounts of articles. How do you recommend, you know, young surgeons use the Journal of Oral Maxfacial Surgery to benefit them in their daily practice? Yeah, there's a, a few tips that I would give. You know, we were able to get the process of uh, getting a paper first, you know, getting it submitted, and then through the process of being vetted by the experts, and then finally available to readers, you know, squeezed down to a very short amount of time so that you know, once an article is submitted, if it has, you know, it meets all of our criteria for being worth publishing, that you know, once it's accepted, it's, you know, it's available to the readership within two to three weeks of, of us accepting it. So, you know, it's, it's you know, but to, to get access to those things, you can't just wait till the hard copy comes out or, or an issue comes out. You have to go to the articles and press online. You know, that's, you know, it's obviously not a hard copy at that point. Those articles come out, you know, and they pop into the uh, articles in press almost on a daily basis. You know, one or two you know, will pop in. Uh, you can get alerts. You know, you can go on your phone. You can go to the JLMS website and tick alerts, which will either on a daily basis, weekly, monthly, 
will uh, you can uh, see what articles are populating the articles in press. And in that way, you can see the ones that interest you, because I, I agree with you, there's way too much stuff out there to try to figure it all out. But that way, you get a, instead of a, you know, a fire hose, it's more of a, you know, a garden hose <laughs> that you can at least see what's coming through the journal, what's going to be published. There's still a delay of a few months before it actually appears in print. And then you get the whole issue. Whereas if you start to uh, get these alerts that tell you there's two new articles or whatever, and I give you the, the titles, you can see the ones that are, are of interest to you. Something that I think is probably way underused is something called clinical focus. If you go to the JOMS website and scroll down, you'll see something that's called clinical focus at the bottom of the web page, the main page. This is where I, I ask uh, section editors who are some of the top names in our specialty to pick what they consider are the most relevant and timely papers on various topics. And those were, you know, they, they listed them. They also, on the journal site, if, if they're able to be easily accessed, you can just highlight them and the article will pop up. But they're on, they're on specific topics, so you can go down the list of topics. And if you see one, you know, that is of particularly interest to you, you know, you can highlight that and you'll see those articles listed. And this is something that was developed over a number of years. And so that's something which I would say is a, a way to, again, distill down all the knowledge, and particularly for the young surgeon who maybe wasn't even around when some of these, or at least wasn't, you know, in, the, in training at the time that these articles were first published to give them an idea of what articles they should be focusing on. The other thing which uh, I think is useful to distill things down are uh, just the wisdom of the crowd kind of a thing. The, the most read papers in the last 30 days, again, that's the wisdom of the crowds. You think these must be enough interest that you know people are reading them commonly. And then they also have the most read articles in the last three years. I think those are n another way of you know finding articles that are of special interest to the general membership. And in some cases, I assume even patients might be you know, looking at them because some of them are topics that I think patients would be interested in. So th those would be the tips I would give. I never thought that anybody had time or, or interest maybe of uh, reading the journal from cover to cover. And that's why when, when I, w I became editor-in-chief, I broke it down into sections with in the sections I thought were some of the natural divisions between the scope of our specialty. And so you can read a specific section that has an interest to you rather than having to pour through the entire journal to find the articles that you want. So uh, that was a editorial, wasn't a trick. It was just technique to help distill things to some degree down to at least a general topic for people that have, you know, maybe they don't do cancer surgery or they, you know, they, they don't do trauma. They won't probably read articles in those areas, and, and that's that's fine. And, and that's where having it broken down into sections, I think, helped the reader find what they want. Those are great tips. I didn't even realize that clinical focus tab was there. I, I just popped up the website and scrolled down and found it, and that's pretty cool. It distills it down like that for those topics. Super helpful. Excellent. My next question for you is in regards to, you know, young dental students, residents, private practice surgeons, even people in academics who want to contribute to the profession as a whole, you know, what advice do you have for those people who are in all these different aspects of, of oral surgery, but want to contribute? What, what would you say to those people? 
I'll boil it down to the, let's say, the newly trained oral maxillofacial surgeon. And, and I guess this could even be for residents, but, but they probably don't have the time to do this. But I'd say the newly, you know, the newly trained, you know, uh, person that's in the first 10 years of their practice. Yeah, you're really busy. You know, practice is hard work and practice takes up a lot of time. But I would I would urge those individuals to also consider getting involved with their state OMS society. To influence our specialty, you need to be in one of the uh, committees of Amos, or or you can become a delegate. You know, you can be an alternate delegate and then eventually become a, you know the regular delegate for your state. Those are those positions are are out there for even the young uh, OMS. You know, it's coming out, and through that process, uh, many people will find that they really in, enjoy certain aspects of our specialty that, to influence, whether it be the political scene or or education or, or practice management. You know, th- there's a lot of different areas where there, you know, we have committees that need to be populated by surgeons. I would contact your district trustee because they're the ones that usually recommend members in their district for committees and. But certainly getting involved with your state society, go to the meeting. Most of the meetings are only once a year for most places, so it's not that big a time commitment. You know, volunteer to be, be a helper. Don't just go to the meeting just to socialize and be, get involved. And, you know, the future leaders of our specialty are, are going to come out of those individuals who step up at that point. I think it's fun to be involved personally. You know, if anybody thinks it's a big burden or it's a you know, just not, they don't like what they're doing, they shouldn't be involved. But I think most people, once they find out how easy it is to be involved and actually start to make, uh, make an impact and how, how welcoming these groups are to have young surgeons come in and, and start to, you know, speak up and participate, I think people will enjoy the experience and realize that, you know, our specialty will constantly, like all, all disciplines, but our, our specialty is constantly under attack by uh, outside forces and we need people to be involved to help, you know, help with that, help, you know, insurance company stuff, you know, political stuff, uh, other specialties. You know, there's a lot of dynamics out there that, you know, even the even the general public can turn against, especially if, you, you know, it, so there's there are there are things that uh, need to be done and we need to have people step up and volunteer to be part of the you know solution and not. And not just be out there. You know, you, you can sit there and just enjoy the the fruits of your labors and being a specialist. But I think giving back to our specialty is is another another important. I would consider it a, a responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because the great specialty we have, it's not going to be great if we don't have people participate and helping keep it great. Absolutely. You know, you've done so many different things. You've been the program director, chair, dean of dental school, editor and done so many different procedures and worked with so many of the greats in our specialty. Looking back, what um, has been the most rewarding aspect of, of your career? You know, a few things. One, and it's the reason why I love academia, is, is, is the opportunity to work with students and residents. You learn so much from them. They, they really force you to stay on top of things and, and to make sure that, uh, you know, that you're not going around thinking you know everything when you really don't. And so uh, the, the ability to work with them has been really uh, rewarding. You know, I was involved with the uh, American board and both as a, an examiner and eventually in the leadership roles. And that's another experience like being journal editor where you get to interact with other members of our specialty 
and in some cases, uh, very notable ones, um, and and do it both, you know, to help pay back our specialty by doing the examinations and helping the board do its work. But then also you get to interact with these other individuals because you're not always examining. You know, a lot of the time you're, uh, you know, it's after the exams are done or, or you know, between exams. Uh, you actually examine with other surgeons. So so there's a lot of chance to meet other members of our specialty and enjoy hearing about their experiences and that you learn from them. And so so being involved with the board was was another one. And, and certainly being journal editor was a privilege. You know, that's a rare privilege, a uh, chance to have an impact on our specialty. And that's you know kind of the mission of my life is to have an impact on, you know, not just our specialty. I, my, my mission statement actually is to have an impact on the world. And that's and, and that's not just through my, my own efforts, it's through my efforts of myself and my family. So my family is part of helping me accomplish that. But that's where, uh, you know, the, the journal was a, another opportunity to have that influence uh, in our specialty. That's awesome. And you bring up the, the family. It sounds like your wife is an amazing woman who's flexible with going to all these different places. So you had four total children, is that correct? Yeah, we have four kids, all happily married and three grandchildren. And I'll brag about my wife. She's actually, uh, for for many people, she's a famous person. You know, she was the managing editor of the JLMS during the time I was editor-in-chief by uh, anybody that's involved with the journal over the last uh, 11 years. And then Triple O before that knows her as Carmen. Uh, she's, She's like Cher. She People know her just by her first name. <laughs> nice. And I don't know if she's prepared it yet, but at the next Amos meeting in New Orleans, she will be giving a speech at the opening ceremonies because she is being made, or she has been made, I guess I'm not sure when it actually occurs, an honorary fellow of the AOMS. Wow. Uh, which is a, it's, it's usually given to foreign uh, dignitary oral surgeons and sometimes to Amos staff that are, are you know, have, have had a long tenure. So she's a, She's unusual from the standpoint that she's being honored in this way, but she's earned that honor. And so so the Carmen will be on the stage at the opening ceremonies in New Orleans. Oh, that's so awesome. Wow, what an accomplished woman to raise all those kids and still help you with you know, some of the editing duties. That's That's amazing. Were you able to convince any of your kids to become oral surgeons? No, uh, and it, it, it wasn't a one way or the other kind of a thing. We we encouraged them to follow their own interests. Okay. And so uh, the closest thing, I, I and I'm not sure it was because of me at all. Uh, you know, one of our daughters is an attorney in, in Nashville. And, uh, you know, the two sons, you know, did uh, went and became economics majors in college and got their MBAs and are very successful in, in their careers. And our other daughter successful. Uh, in Nashville as well in her career. So, so you know, and I, and I, I do give a ton of the credit to uh, my wife to, uh, she, she had to do all the heavy lifting uh, while I was doing my uh, academic career and uh, things like law school. Yeah. Wow. Very, very cool. I have six kids and I'm hoping at least one will become an oral surgeon. You never know, or at least an anesthesiologist, something I could relate to so we can have continue conversations in the future, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's uh, one of those things where, you know, hopefully they'll find their own path to the art, to our specialty. Yes. It seems like, you know, the kids, in my humble opinion, the kids that have been kind of pressured to go in a certain path often uh, regret it. 
you know, yep. after they've, you know, kind of gone down that path. And uh, so uh, it's better to let them find it on their own. And, but I'm sure you're, in the, you know, in my case, I might have given them a disincentive because, you know, you know, dad was you know, getting woken up in the middle of the night to go into the hospital and dad wasn't oh, yeah. home, you know, a lot of the time. And so I'm not sure. And then occasionally I'd show them some of the cases I was working on, which looked kind of kind of uh, scary to, to kids. Uh, gnarly, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, and then the only experience they had were getting their third molars out. And so, you know, fortunately, they don't remember any of that because they were, you know, put under and uh, had a nice recovery. So uh, from that standpoint, I'm not sure uh, they got a good flavor of what our specialty has to offer. Got it, okay. Now, I'm just curious because you said you grew up wanting to become a dentist. Was your father a dentist or no? No, my dad was a engineer for a paper company. So now we never okay. had any healthcare providers. I just, I think the only influence my mother had was she, my father worked for, for a large uh, corporation and he didn't have any trouble with it, but I think she wasn't excited about the fact that he worked for the man, the man yeah. being the paper company. And mm-hmm. she thought dentistry was a good choice in my mind because you, you were back in those days, you could be your own boss. I'm not sure that's the future of dentistry, but at least back <laughs> right. back then, back then most dentists could be their own boss, and, and she liked that independence uh, that versus uh, working for a company. And then I went to academia, where you're not working for yourself; you're working for a university. So I didn't even yeah. follow her her wishes in my own career. <laughs> you're working for the educated man. That's right. <laughs> I'm a third generation dentist. And I have seven uncles and five cousins that are all general dentists. I, I'm the first surgeon and my little brother's in his oral surgery residency. But when we have our family reunions, we all stand around, you know, and talk about your, the bridge you did or the crown or the, you know, the bleeder you, you had when you were doing sur- surgery. And everyone rolls their eyes and is like, oh, Jesus, this is a bunch of nerds, dental nerds. Yeah, I'm sure that goes over big when the, the, the non-dental family members that. Uh, have to have to sit at the table with you. It's painful for them, for sure. Yeah. Well, that was really helpful. You said a lot of good things, I think, that can kind of guide some of our young people in the specialty about how to utilize the materials out there, especially the research articles, and then also how to you know give back and contribute to the specialty. Can I plug one thing before we move to the final thing? Yeah. So I, I'm editor of Famous today, and I, I already said that I don't think anybody probably does, or, or I'm not even they, sure they should read JLMS cover to cover. But Amos today, they should, especially the young surgeon. It has a lot of things, particularly the practicing, you know, the practicing surgeon. It has a lot of sections, you know, that are specifically designed for their interest. And there's also other stories, uh, and we're trying to in- increase the number of what I would call surgical interest stories um, beyond just the clinical stuff. So I would urge everybody to take a look at their Amos today because it, it, I think it is worth uh, reading most of it, if not all of it. So that's that's my plug for the the cast here. Your shameless plug. Okay, I'll piggyback on that, and I will say that after I started doing my podcast, I was kind of looking around and trying to expand the the people who I interview, and I stumbled upon Amos today. I didn't even realize that existed. And so oh. I started reading it and this is two years ago and I started reading them and I was, it was, it's a very easy read and it's lots of, lots of cool 
stuff going on. And, and a lot of the people actually I knew were in it. I didn't even realize they were in these articles. And so I just came to thoroughly enjoy Amos today. And now every time it comes out, I read it cover to cover. And I will say that I harvest a lot of my interviewees from that because I'll read about so-and-so doing something in San Diego or Michigan, and I'll give them a call or email them and say, hey, I saw your article. Could you be on the podcast? And they're always so gracious and, and willing to talk about their Amos Today article. So very cool. Well, good. So we end every podcast with some rapid fire questions. So are you ready for this? This is good. You didn't send these to me ahead of time, so. No, I wanted it to be spontaneous. <laughs> is this uh, like that first word that pops into your head kind of a thing? Exactly. That's the okay. idea. Okay. So the, the first question is, what is the best book you've read in the past year? Well, interesting enough, I can't get the title. It's over there, but it's a book on the New York subway system. The New York oh. subway system is a fascinating thing and the way it developed, because it developed as a bunch of different systems that all finally kind of merged under the city. But before the subway, there was all kinds of other ways of getting around this large area. And it's just a fascinating book. Uh, and it's a book about the New York subway system that, that I liked. And I, my face froze. Are you still hearing me? Yes. Okay. Excellent. I'll have to look that book up. The next question is... I'll email you the, the title. Oh, yes. Please do. I'll include it in the show notes of the podcast It's a fascinating read. Okay. Next question is, what has been the most helpful non-oral surgery thing you've done that helps you with your daily oral surgery skills? I'm not sure anything pops into my head the most. Okay. My interests are gardening and crosswords and cooking and and none of those helped me be a better oral surgeon so <laughs> so I have a, a shameful I'll I'll give you one thing and I'm not sure it helped me in dental school when I was in college I signed up cuz I actually wanted to rush through college cuz I couldn't afford to pay for 4 years uh, so uh I took a uh, sculpture class you know it was, it was one of my five classes I took five classes every quarter and I took it I took a class in sculpture cuz it, it actually came at the right time and it sounded interesting. And it, it was a fascinating class to learn. I'm not a sculptor by any, any stretch, but it did allow me to, to you know, start to work with my hands because I was never one of those people that did anything other than put together airplane models as a kid. Okay. Yeah, that's great. All that stuff, I think, is good. Even gardening and cooking, I'm sure, has some hand-eye coordination slash following instructions that can help you in oral surgery. Next question for you. What forceps do you use or maybe past tense did you use consistently to extract tooth number 14? Cow horns. <laughs> oh, you know, 14 upper cow horns. But yeah, the upper cow horn. Yes. The anatomic. Those are, but those I, always, are I, I always stress to students, and it was always my practice to luxate a tooth. And I did a lot of luxation before I took out most teeth unless they're already loose. But most teeth, I, would, I was a big fan, and it's in the textbook I, I wrote in the chapters about you know, dental alveolar surgery. It was uh, do a lot of luxation, and that way I avoided breaking roots and I avoided breaking the alveolar bone. Yes, that's an excellent tip. And I like obviously that. using a burr, if you couldn't get it luxated very well, using a burr to divide it. Yeah, section it. Yep. What is the best movie or TV series you've watched in the past year? Well, we're in an NYU apartment that they're graciously uh, giving us without cost. So we don't have HBO or any of that stuff so, or short Showtime or any of that. But I was really enjoying Ozark. Oh, yes. You know, the uh, the series. But 
and don't spoil it for me because I, I haven't been able to see the final season because we don't have access to cable TV here that carries that. So okay. but that, I was I having, I, I used to, as a Boy Scout in Memphis, Tennessee, we actually did our summer Boy Scout trips to the Ozarks. And oh. so I, I, I know that area and I know the, the, you know, the backwoods and the, you know, it was before that uh, part of, uh, you know, that more jazzy part of Missouri opened up. Uh, but so it was, it was the Arkansas part of the Ozarks. So, uh, nice. but, but I, I like the show. I thought it was very cleverly written and. Yeah. I love it too. That's awesome. The last question I have for you is what is your favorite quote? Anything that Abraham Lincoln said. <laughs> he's my, he's my overall hero in history. Um, yes. Right. I can't I can't quote the Gettysburg Address or any of that stuff, but if I had to look up a quote, I would do that. And I'll give you a little side story. I know you're going to edit a lot of this stuff out, but I'll just give it to you for your edification. Yeah. So when we were in, uh, when I was in my MBA program, uh, we, we read a book, uh, Lincoln on Leadership. It's a little short book, you know, very, very well written, uh, concise book. And it wasn't written by Lincoln. It was written you know, talking about Lincoln's approach to leadership. And they had a, a guy come in who was, uh, you know, dressed up like Lincoln to come talk to us. But he would talk to us as if, you know, it was before he got shot. So if you asked him any questions that had anything to do with the future after after Lincoln died, he, he didn't know about it. He didn't know about the history after he died. So you had to ask all your questions and he would answer them based on, you know, 19... 19- or 1865 and before, you know, knowledge of what was going on. And so it, it was a really uh, interesting thing. So I actually went up and talked to the guy and said, you know, this would be a fun thing to do for, for leaders in the dental school. So I actually hired the guy. We had a retreat for all the uh, department heads in the uh, dental school. This is at Maryland. And this guy came and we all read the book. And then the guy came and we did the same thing. And it was just wonderful for it was a it was a bonding experience for all the chairs of the departments, but also we learned a lot of things about leadership that you don't always think about. Uh, but it, you know, and it's a, it's a book you can read in probably about an hour and a half, two hours at the most. But uh, but you know, Lincoln to me, you know, stood his ground, and you know, he compromised when he needed to. All the things that modern politicians don't seem able to do, yeah. and he was able to change his position on things without. Worrying that people would say, hey, you're, you know, two years ago you said this and now you're saying this. Well, yeah, he, he said, well, well, I've, I've changed my mind, you know, and he was willing to admit that. And, uh, you know, I've changed my opinion on stuff. And we need we need more of that in our national leadership right now. Oh, for sure. You know, when you said Abraham Lincoln, I pulled up because I love some of his quotes, too. I pulled up this quote app I have on my phone and searched for all his quotes. And there's so many classic ones. One is, give me six hours to chop down a tree and I will spend the first four hours sharpening the axe. Uh, That's applicable to oral surgery. Exactly. (laughs) Especially, yeah, yeah, planning and preparing and doing everything you can before the actual surgery so that it goes smoothly. But yeah, he has tons of great quotes. Awesome. You know, he was was self-taught, which I 
I think all of us, we can say, well, I didn't go to maybe the best whatever school or whatever. There's a lot of opportunity to learn stuff beyond what you were taught in school or what you were taught in your training program. I already told you, you know, that I, I learned how to do TMJ surgery and cleft surgery years after I finished my residency. Just yeah. I, It was lucky. It was lucky. And most people don't get to do that. You know, they think, well, I, uh, you know, I, I didn't learn how to do such and such in my residency. So I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm just not never going to do that. But yeah. Man, man I, I wouldn't. I would not uh, say that that's that's true. I would say there's there are, if there's a will, there's a way on that stuff. Absolutely. One last quote by Lincoln: Whenever I hear anyone arguing for slavery, I feel a strong impulse to see it tried on him personally. <laughs> oh <laughs> gosh, classic. Yeah. But that, I mean, that's yeah, a good lesson a, for for practice owners, you know, who demand their employees do certain things, but you know, never have experienced that job themselves. It's so important for us to know what it's like doing a job before we make people do things that maybe they're uncomfortable with. Yeah. I, I was always a strong believer in it. And I, I was always, re, you know, reluctant to ask anybody to do something that I didn't think I could do myself. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, I, and I think that goes a long way in people having confidence in you. And, and then, you know, if they're, you know, if they say, well, I, I really don't know how to do it. You can, Say, well, you know, here's my approach and, and leads to your own yeah. credibility as opposed to saying, well, go read a book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. That's awesome. Well, Jim, thank you so much for taking the time. My last question is if there are listeners, you know, who have further questions about what we discussed, are you okay if they reach out to you in some fashion or another? Sure. I'm, I'm an e- email guy and uh, I think you already have my okay. email, the one that I use. Uh, yeah, happy. Yeah. I used that when I was journal editor too. It's jrhuppetme.com. Quick and easy. Awesome. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much. Have a good rest of the day and hopefully we can keep in touch. Yeah, congratulations on this podcast. This is a great thing that you're doing and hopefully you, you expand uh, even more. It sounds like you have a lot of listeners and yeah, hopefully you can even expand on that base. I'll keep plugging along and do the best I can, but I appreciate your support. Yep. Take care. Well, thank you. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. If you are an oral and maxillofacial surgeon and would like to be on this podcast, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com or text me at 720-441-6059. Also, if you have any topics that you would like to hear discussed or feedback on a certain episode that has already aired, please call or email or text me. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode.